Hey, you're listening to Orla's Happy Hormones podcast, talking all things female health and wellness. I'm Orla O'Flaherty, a certified naturopath and herbalist, and I'm here to talk about everything from periods, PCOS, endometriosis, health, sex, wellness, and life in general. Here's to happy hormones and a happy you. Hey everybody, and welcome to another episode of Orla's Happy Hormones podcast. So this week I am doing a Q&A style episode and really it's I love doing Q&A podcasts and I love doing Q&As in general. So like if any of you follow me on Instagram or Facebook you see that I do a weekly Q&A. So I answer five questions around whatever it is that you want to know be it hormones, periods, general health a lot of relationship questions coming in lately and but I, I like answering questions for people as best as I can from my knowledge I met someone this week who I haven't spoken to in a while and she made a very valid point to me that doing these Q&A's are really important for women who one don't have accessibility to go to their doctors to ask in-depth questions because it's like 60 pop a go and they may just have a simple question around periods or around hormones that they just need answering and also a lot of women their doctors are male and they they're not fully comfortable talking to them about their cycles or talking to them about their bodily functions or if they have dry vaginas or excess bleeding or their cycles are x amount of days long and this girl that I met she she said that it is really important for women to have an outlet somewhere to go to ask these questions without fear of judgment or feeling silly so I was so grateful to hear that because there are times when you do these things, you do these podcasts and or when I do these podcasts that I'm like, mm, is it actually helping anyone? But getting the feedback from people proves to me that it does and it makes me look at my insecurities <laughs> and move through them. But I am glad to be able to do the Q&A style ones. So this week I'm back to do another Q&A. I'm answering three questions a bit more in-depth than on the the Instagram feed because I'm kind of stuck to 15 seconds to a minute to answer those questions. So I like to go a bit further in-depth. So to get started, my first question that came in was, Hi Orla, I suffer with extreme irregular periods, maybe one every six months since coming off the pill. I have had bloods taken but all hormone levels are normal. Why is this? So what I will say is that everybody's body is different. I'm sure you've heard me say that a million and one times, but it's true. Everybody's body is different. Everybody's hormone fluctuations are different. The way people respond to stress, be it environmental, internal, external, it's all different. So there can be a number of factors for this, but as well, it will be quite individual to yourself. But 
the most common two reasons that I see for this usually is either post-pill amenorrhea or as post-pill PCOS. And again, it's all dependent on the person and also looking at all the different elements of your cycle. And also looking at what was your cycle like pre-pill, so before you were ever put on the pill. So certain things really you should be looking at before you went on the pill would be the likes of how old were you when you started your periods? Because studies show that the earlier menses starts, like 11 or younger, the more at risk you are developing some sort of gynecological problem. Then what were your periods like? Were they very heavy? Did you have extreme pain? So the likes of vomiting and diarrhea. Did you have a, a excessive bleeding, like flooding? Again, these are all possible signs of a pre-existing condition. And then what were your cycles like before going on the pill? Did you have a standard 24 to 35 day cycle? Because remember, the whole 28 day cycle isn't really the norm. It's just a myth. It's not that it's a myth. It's just it's classed as the norm to make things easier for explanation. So really what I'm asking here is, were your cycles regular before the pill and now they've changed? Again, if they were irregular before the pill, this is a sign of a possible pre-existing condition. And for anyone else who is going through anything similar, it's always looking at what your cycle was like pre-pill. Then you're put on the pill to quote-unquote regulate your cycles. Well, unfortunately, this isn't the case. The pill doesn't regulate your cycles. It stops ovulation and it stops natural hormone fluctuations. So it's not fixing a problem. It's actually masking a problem. So for anyone who is going through period problems, gynecological problems now, who have come off the pill, go back to what your cycles were like pre-pill. Go through the list of questions. Were there an issue or were there issues? If yes, and now you're off the pill and these same issues are back, look into investigations. Find out what the underlying cause of these hormone imbalances, of these issues are. You have the right to know. So do go to your doctor and, and ask for further investigations. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself, but anyway, what is post-pill amenorrhea? So it's categorized under the heading of secondary amenorrhea. So secondary amenorrhea is when you've had, you've started your periods, but then stops due to multiple different factors. Could be weight loss, could be stress, could be excessive exercise, which falls under the category of stress as well. But post-pill amenorrhea, it's usually when your periods don't return for three to six months after stopping the pill. So it is hard for me to, to distinguish here without more information of yourself personally if it is post-pill amenorrhea because I would need more information. But what your first goal is here, really, it's to look at what's going on internally. What are your stress levels like? Chronic stress, like this completely inhibits proper estrogen and progesterone production. Usually, it, when it comes to amenorrhea down to stress, you're looking at hypothalamic function and pituitary function as well. So what is your stress levels like? 
and what's your sleep like what's your nutrition like all of these play a huge role in hormones balancing out after coming off the pill like it can take three to six months for hormones to balance after coming off the pill and again this is down to the pill has been stopping ovulation it's been stopping proper estrogen production so it's going to have a domino effect on all your other hormones as well but looking at the fundamentals the basic daily requirements so the likes of like i said your nutrition your sleep your stress putting a plan in place to get those three areas under control that can drastically change your hormones in a positive way that can really help to get them back functioning how they should be because it's not just the estrogen and progesterone that we're looking at it is the cortisol and the adrenaline and also some a lot of the time not a lot of the time but sometimes your thyroid hormones also and again stress poor nutrition poor sleep can really have a negative impact on your monthly cycle so looking at those areas but then the second most common cause for this, what I see, is post-pill PCOS. So when it comes to PCOS, there is no cut and dry answer. And this is because there are four types of PCOS and not all have the same symptoms. It, it really is a, um, a condition that is individual to the person there there is no one size fits all when it comes to pcos so the four types are your insulin resistance pcos that's the most common one then post pill pcos that's the second most common then inflammatory pcos and hidden pcos so post pill pcos it develops due to the pill suppressing ovulation so if you had regular cycles before the pill and now they're irregular i would consider returning to your doctor for further investigations I know you've had blood tests done and everything's come back normal. But again, looking in that normal range, is it actually in the normal? The normal range is quite wide. You could be in some hormones, maybe lower on one side, upper on another. Like I said, the normal range, it's it's quite vast. But then I've also had clients in the past where their blood work was normal. They sent me on the the results and I went through them and I was like, wow, this I've never seen blood results so normal in my life. And but the reason they ended up getting further investigations was because they were trying to conceive for over a year and it wasn't working for them. And when they went for the further investigations, they actually found that they did have polycystic ovaries. Now, again, even for myself, looking at certain clients, I'd be like, geez, no, I'm not really seeing the common signs and symptoms, but there is definitely something going on here. And that's because the insulin resistance PCOS is the most common one. And people are usually looking for the signs. So the likes of being overweight, excessive acne on the jawline, excess facial hair, And then unfortunately, the other types are overlooked because they're like over 50% of women with gynae problems are actually undiagnosed gynae problems. And a lot of the time it is coming down to PCOS 
And again, it could be your post-pill PCOS, inflammatory PCOS, hidden PCOS. But if you are trying to conceive and nothing is happening, even though your blood works have come back normal, go back to your doctor, ask for further investigations. Even if you're not trying to conceive, but there is a problem for the last six months, well, actually, I'm sorry, I'm not sure how long this has been going on for, but you did mention that you'd only get a period maybe once every six months. That's that's a real red flag there that there is something else going on, even if the blood work is, has come back normal. There could be something hidden in there. So my recommendation would be going back to the doctor and asking for further investigations, but also looking at the areas in your life of stress, nutrition, sleep. Where can you help yourself in these areas and help to balance the hormones out naturally also? So I hope that's helped. So now for my second question. Hey Orla, what herbs would you use for period pains? Neurofin is the only thing that works for me, but it kills my stomach. Thanks. Okay, so herbs, my favourite topic. <laughs> but... Neurofin? Not so much my favourite topic. <laughs> well, to start, I get why neurofin is killing your stomach. Ibuprofen, that's the active ingredient in neurofin. It's a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory and it works by blocking the production of prostaglandins. Now, I've spoken about prostaglandins before. They're chemicals released in the brain in response to injury and fever, and they also cause uterine contractions for periods in labor. The thing is, though, with ibuprofen and other non-steroidal anti-inflammatories or other anti-prostaglandins, because neurofin is actually an anti-prostaglandin, is that prostaglandins actually protect the stomach lining cells and promote blood clotting so they promote platelet formation therefore non-steroidal anti-inflammatories can actually promote ulcers and bleeding in the gut now it's also worthy to note here that studies are showing that non-steroidal anti-inflammatories change the composition and diversity of gut microbes now gut bacteria that make up the gastrointestinal microbiome play a really, really big, important role in the metabolism of most chemicals that humans are ingesting. So when the gut microbiome is altered, the breakdown and absorption of foods and drugs, that's also altered. The neurofin paired with its antiprostaglandin nature, it's going to have negative side effects on your stomach, especially when taken long term. So without going into the full-on science of it all, you can see why I, I'm i not a huge fan of neurofin or ibuprofen because it's it's quite aggressive on the gut lining and then there's nothing there within it to help heal the gut lining. And I don't think people realise the severity of using ibuprofen long-term. But even in saying that, I'm not going to be a hypocrite and sit here on my high horse and tell you not to take it because when you have period pains and you can't function, you need help. And also, I can't tell you not to take it when there are times 
when I have my stash of Ponston in my press, which is another antiprostaglandin, and I take it when I'm desperate. Well, now luckily I haven't actually had to take it since May. That's the last time I've had a really, really intense period. And I'm hoping I won't need it again anytime soon. But when I do have to take it, I make sure to have gut healing herbs alongside with it. Because as well, Ponston is a very strong medication. Ibuprofen, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, antiprostaglandins, they are all really strong and corrosive to the gut lining. So you need to be proactive when it comes to keeping your, your gut health on point. So when I am taking it, I have my healing herbs to go alongside alongside with it. My first one is Slippery Elm Powder. So Slippery Elm is rich in mucilage and it's a demulcent herb. So a demulcent herb means it's capable of soothing the lining of the stomach and also the intestines and it reduces irritation. So taking one teaspoon in a mug of warm water will instantly help to protect the gut lining. It will coat it and it will soothe it. And it's actually also really good for the, the likes of IBS and IBD symptoms too. Now, I know a lot of people out there don't like the tastes of things. Slippery and powder actually doesn't taste that bad. It It's kind of similar to a broth. So one teaspoon in a mug of not boiling water, but cooled boiled water. Very similar to a broth or a Chinese style broth. So you could even start adding it into your foods, just making up a little mix of it and adding it into your soup. Then you're getting that that mucilage and that demulcent effect. Because and it, it does give flavour and it, it's actually quite nice. So that's the first one that I would always use. Then if you want to actually avoid taking non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, really you're looking at preventative measures. So looking into an anti-inflammatory diet, which would be rich in fresh whole fruits and veggies for their flavonoid and anthocyanin properties. Like think of all the colours of the rainbow and then reducing processed meats and freezer ready meals and and wheat and it's not so much gluten, it, it's more so the wheat. So your standard bread that you're buying in a shop, if you're going to eat bread, get an organic sourdough, go to the bakery and get a real bread so looking at an anti-inflammatory diet, then also looking at your stress levels. I've spoken about this already. Chronic stress really increases inflammation in the body, which is going to have a negative effect on your on your cycle, but also on your pain levels. So looking at reducing out stress. I myself, I haven't had to take Ponston since May. That was my last really bad period. And up until... Not up until May, but the first half of the year, I had quite a lot of stress. And once that stress had gone, my periods had not so much balanced out, but the pain had reduced for my periods. So if you do have a lot of stress in your life, just look at what's going on there and how, how it is you can fix that. But then when that's all well and good, but when your period comes and you are in the throes of it where you're writhing around on the floor or the bed or you're vomiting diarrhea the works there are herbs that you can use in that moment so 
the ones that I would recommend and the ones that have traditionally been used, the likes of Crampark. So this is an antispasmodic and uterine sedative, as well as an astringent herb, meaning that it can help to reduce that spasmodic cramping as well as preventing and regulating heavy flows. And it also has analgesic properties. So analgesic properties are uh, natural pain relievers. So that's a good one to have on hand. So in tincture form, taking 2.5 mils or 5 mils three times a day, that would be quite beneficial. But starting it, if you're someone who gets cramps before your period comes, starting it at the very onset of those cramps. Then another herb, chamomile. Everyone sees chamomile tea and just thinks it's a flower tea. And they don't realise the the medicinal properties that chamomile actually has. So it contains antispasmodic, anti-inflammatory properties called hipparit and glycine, which help to relieve pain and reduce cramping. So again, I would be recommending getting a strong cup of chamomile tea now not the tea bags that you're buying from the local shop if you can get yourself like the dried herb and making your own loose leaf tea at home fantastic pour cooled boiled not cooled boiled but boiled water but it has to be off the boil over a teaspoon in a mug and cover the mug so that you're not losing all the volatile oils and let it steep for a good 15 to 20 minutes and then you're really extracting the those properties from it adding in a bit of ginger just to warm it up also helps and ginger has anti-inflammatory properties but sipping on like your chamomile and ginger tea all throughout the day that will really help then another herb cinnamon now cinnamon is a lovely warming herb and it also has hormone modulating properties and anti-inflammatory properties so if you normally feel better for warmth on your tummy during your period, I would be looking at adding adding in this either into your food or use it as a tea or getting it in tincture form. And it's also really good for balancing insulin levels also. Then the last herb would be raspberry leaves. So raspberry leaves traditionally have been used for hundreds of years for all female gynecological problems, but mainly it's kind of categorized in the pre-labor and labor stages uh, of pregnancy. But drinking raspberry leaf tea at the first signs of cramps can really support you through your through your cramps and help relieve them quickly. So it contains an alkaloid known as fragrant, which helps to tighten and tone muscles in the pelvis, in turn helping with cramps. It also contains tannins, which again are known to strengthen the uterus and also relieving heavy bleeding. So that is one a good one to have in the cupboard. And again, trying to get the, the dried leaves and making these teas yourself. You can make a mixed tea of cramp bark, raspberry leaves, chamomile and cinnamon. It would actually be, yeah, that would be a really nice tasting tea. So just getting little bags of these four herbs, mixing them all together having your little jar of your your menstrual tea on hand first sign of cramps brew it up brew up a flask for the day bring it to work with you and sip on them 
or if you can't go to work because they're that bad, just have the pot sitting beside you for the day. So try giving these a go on your next period, but make sure to be prepared, have them there and have them ready. So my third and final question is, hi Orla, myself and my boyfriend haven't had sex in a long time. I'm worried I'm not attractive to him anymore. Any advice? So first things first, I'm just going to state I'm not a relationship expert. I'm not a sex therapist. I'm not a psychotherapist. Yes, I've done my diplomas in it, but I never actually finished my psychology and psychotherapy. But I'm a woman and I have experience with relationships, the good and the bad. So where I'll go with this is, look, I get it. I completely understand why you might feel like this. But first things first, this is something that you are telling yourself, as in, I'm worried I'm not attractive to him anymore. This is your thought process. And it sounds like it's having a real negative effect on your own emotions. So I want you to ask yourself, instead of, am I attractive to him anymore? To, do I feel attractive? And if the answer is no, then that's where you have to look first. How you feel is a direct effect of what your own self-talk or that inner monologue is. Yes, 100% circumstances can play a role in how we feel. But before the feeling part comes the thinking part. So yourself and your boyfriend haven't had sex in a long time. The thought that's in your head now is that you're not attractive or that you're not attractive to him anymore. And then that automatically brings up feelings of rejection. And feelings of rejection can, they can actually be compared to physical pain in the brain. MRIs have, have shown this. It's the same neuron neurons that are being fired when it comes to the feeling rejected or physical pain. It's the same too. My advice to you on this one is, is one of two things really. One, when it comes to you and your boyfriend, initiate intimacy. Make time for a date night, have a fireplace picnic, put on candles, play some music, have your favorite foods out, have a drink if, if you do drink, and surprise him then gauge his reaction if he's open to it then take things further if not enjoy the time together without it turning sexual because unless you've asked him what's going on you don't actually really know because you're not a mind reader and neither is he my second option is just what i said ask him straight out in an open safe space what's going on why aren't we having sex? Ask him the hard questions. Ask him, is there something going on for him? Is there something going on for him at work? Is there something going on for him physically? And then let him know how you're feeling. But use your words. Tell him you feel unattractive. Don't say, you're making me feel unattractive because that's putting your insecurities onto him. You have to own your own emotions and you have to own your own thought process. Now, look, there could be a number of reasons for him not wanting to be intimate. Like stress, 
low testosterone, fatigue, they all cause low libido in men and women. But the key is having an open conversation about it. Like what I always say is if you're old enough to be having sex, you're old enough to be talking about it. And trust me, I get it. It's scary being vulnerable and open and having those hard conversations. But by having them, it cuts out the guesswork and it lowers your insecurities as well. And now look, is there a risk that you're going to get an answer you don't like? Yeah, of course there is. And that's terrifying. And if you do get an answer that you don't like, then you still know the truth. And you still know that you can actually work with what you've been given. And you can move forward in a different direction. But then there is also a chance that it's something completely separate from the relationship that's causing him to have low libido. And talking about it, it may just it may just bring you closer together. The one thing I've learned is that when you talk and when you're open, intimacy grows. It's in the silence where problems arise. Like you're not talking to him and all of a sudden you are saying to yourself, I'm not attractive to him anymore. You're doing the guesswork. Don't let your thought process ruin your own self-worth. Stop telling yourself that you're unattractive and show yourself love and compassion. Because the most important relationship you have is the one with yourself. So you need to do the work on you and with you and show yourself love. Intimacy in a relationship is a huge, huge thing. It's, it is one of the, the foundations of connection between romantic partners. And losing intimacy is really scary. But by bringing it back in slowly, you will see an improvement. But the thing is, is knowing knowing the truth first, knowing what's going on first. And by talking to each other, that's where you're going to find out what it is that's going on. Feeling like your partner doesn't want you, it is, it does feel like a rejection and it, it can feel hurtful. But again, owning your emotions and owning your thought process around it, that's your first step. Your second step is creating a safe space where you can both come and talk openly without argument, without arguments and also without judgment. Letting each other know that you can speak your truth without judging the other's response. That's key. Then your third step, finding out what is the cause? What is the reason for you having a, of you losing that intimate connection? And then working on that together. And you'll find that your intimacy will grow the more open you are with each other. Because that's when you're connecting. Then putting your plans in place and keeping those lines of communication open going forward. But above all, making sure that the relationship you have with yourself 
is a good relationship, is a positive relationship, is a nurturing relationship and a compassionate relationship. And remember that your self-worth lies with you. You have to love you. So that's all of them. I hope they've helped. If anyone has any other questions, feel free to send them in. I do really enjoy doing the Q&A style podcasts. So if you want to send in longer questions to me for my next Q&A, feel free to do so. I'm at Orla underscore naturopath underscore herbalist on Instagram. And on Facebook, I'm Orla O'Flaherty, naturopath and herbalist. So you can DM me in your questions. For now, happy hormones and happy weekend.